This is Cybok, the cybersecurity body of knowledge, distilling the knowledge from internationally recognized experts and providing foundational education and training for the cybersecurity sector. Hello and welcome to Cybok. I'm Dave Bittner from the Cyberwire. Joining us today is Carmela Troncoso. She's an assistant professor at EPFL in Switzerland. She's author of the Privacy and Online Rights Knowledge Area. The first thing that I explain is that the difference between security and privacy and any other thing that we do or that we think about is that in security and privacy, there is an adversary, right? So when we think normally about anything we do, we think there can be an error or imagine you're doing a phone call and they may rain and the signal may not be very good. In security and privacy, it will always rain for you. The adversary will always try to find the worst case scenario for you. Security is when you try to protect things such as the secrecy of the information, so only people authorized can access it, uh, integrity of information, nobody that is not allowed should be able to modify a, a log, for instance, or availability, right? The fact that systems should always be available. Now, privacy is a very different thing and um Normally, people associate privacy to this idea of secrecy and nobody being able to know my information. But privacy is a much broader concept. It's not only about particular information or particular content of a communication or a file. There's this confidentiality property that security deals with. Privacy also is about who I talk to with. Right, The fact that I'm talking to you already reveals something, that I am somebody that somebody wants to talk to for an interview that makes me different from other people in the world. If you and I were a doctor, then we could infer that I'm actually sick. And if you were in particular an oncologist, we could even be able to infer what disease do I have. Just who you talk with is a small portion of all of the private information that actually we're very keen protecting when we are in the offline world because we're very careful about what we tell our colleagues about who we partied in the weekend or where did we go, right? We select very well what information we tell to whom. And uh, privacy technologies are the thing that try to allow us to make a similar thing in the digital world where there are actually no walls in the sense that information goes through wires and through the air. And a lot of people are allowed to see what we are doing, not only people that can see uh, the communication medium, right? You could think here in the wireless, anybody that can just tap on it, but also the service providers have a lot of information of all of this metadata about what I'm doing and when I'm doing it. Well, let's go through the sections of this uh, body of knowledge area together. Um, The first section covers privacy as confidentiality. Can you give us an overview of what's in there? Yes. When we talk about privacy as confidentiality, we talk about this idea that 
I have some information that I don't want anyone to know. And the first thing that we deal with is data confidentiality, right? In the beginning, I was saying we care about the content of the communication. And for protecting this content, we turn a lot to cryptography. So we encrypt the communications. But it turns out that communication is not the only thing that we do. Nowadays, we also use computers to uh, make a lot of operations in our data. And many times these operations, for instance, happen in the cloud, right? In an environment that is not my own environment. So now imagine that the hospital has my health records and needs to do some processing on it because this is, imagine, my genome. And the genome is very big, so they don't have enough power and they're going to use some cloud service. Now, if they do this just by uploading the data, the cloud service will be able to see my genome, which contains a lot of information about myself, such as my race or which diseases I may have. So we may want to actually protect the data, not only while it travels to the cloud, but also while it is there and it is being part of some computation. So there's another um, bunch of cryptographic techniques that allow you to perform operations without being able to look at the data. So those are kind of the cryptographic side, but these techniques are many times very expensive because they really hide absolutely all the data, right? And hiding all the data, even in the worst case, takes a lot of computation and may take a lot of space. And for many things, we can actually not afford that. So there we have what I called in the body of knowledge obfuscation-based inference control, in which instead of encrypting the data and fully hiding it, what we do is to modify it a little bit, such that even though people can see the data, they cannot guess the very private information. And this is what is normally known as anonymization, right? In which instead of just uh, hiding all the data, we just hide, for instance, who the data belongs to. But what we have learned through the years and years of research is that the more data we have, the more unique is the data and the data itself becomes an identifier. So let's take myself as an example. If we would take the database of EPFL, hear about all of the professors, and we would remove the name, I'm still the only female Spanish professor in computer science. So these three attributes would actually refer back to me inequivocally. So in this part of the knowledge document, I talk about the different ways in which people have tried to enhance this obfuscation of data such that we can actually hide all of this. Maybe Spanish is the thing that gives me away or maybe female or other type of computation that we can do so that we can give out some data, but still people cannot learn anything about a particular individual. Well, let's move on to the next section, which is privacy as control. What's contained in here? Um, so in the case of privacy as control, in the previous case, we had this idea that we're going to hide data and data is going to be hidden very, very well, right? But um, sometimes we may not want to actually hide the data. We may just have want to have control about how data is being used. 
And this is the typical controls that you have, for instance, in uh, uh, online social networks where you say, okay, I'm going to upload this photo and then I'm going to decide which other users have the right to see the photos or which other users have the right to tag on the photo. But actually, the more complex systems uh, become, the more difficult it is for humans to rationalize or to decide which is a good policy. So there are a lot of techniques that try to give users support as to how to configure uh, these permissions in order to attain a goal. Like imagine I say, I don't want anyone from my work to actually see this photo, which is the best Facebook control to actually achieve that. Yeah, that's interesting. So you can, uh, for example, I, I could imagine a scenario where uh, maybe one of your coworkers is also a relative. And so you'd be okay with a relative viewing a particular photo, but maybe not a coworker. So you'd have to figure out how, how to handle that intersection. Yeah. And those kind of things get more complicated, right? Because it may be that my relative is not my coworker, but uh, my relative has a friend that is a coworker. So how do we deal with all of these cases? So a lot of work is being put into trying to help people to understand how do all of these relations work and how to set up policies in a good way so that you really have the control that you think you have. Well, let's move on to the next section, and this is privacy as transparency. Take us through this one. Okay, so here the idea is that um, instead of trying to prevent the data is disclosed either by means of cryptography or by means of these controls, what privacy transparency tries to do is to help you uh, know what happened with the data so that you can make better decisions. And the classical example of this is what I call privacy mirrors. And again, if we turn to the example of social networks, this is this button Facebook that says how others see my profile so that you can go and see how other people perceive you so that you can change your privacy configurations, your privacy behavior. So there is a lot of work also as well into now not trying to help you choose the best configuration, but trying to help you understanding what your current configuration means. So you can have uh, visual cues about who is seeing what part of the data. You can have these mirrors that I spoke about. So in general, it's about trying to put more transparency about where data goes and how it is treated so as to give you a better intuition of the privacy that you're having at each moment. I see. Well, the next section uh, is privacy technologies and democratic values. Uh, there's a lot to going on in this one. Um, can you describe us uh, what's contained here? This is also something that I tend to explain a lot uh, when I explain to people why do I work on privacy and privacy is very important for individuals and that's the first thing that we think about right so far we have gone on all examples about me leaking my data my Facebook data my doctor data but actually the fact that society has privacy and individuals have this intimacy and their capability to not reveal everything they do actually settles the balance of power in the world and we have the examples of fake news now that come every day more and more trying to exploit the information that they can learn about society to try to modify opinions and even the way in which people vote. So 
in this sense, when we move to technological solutions, it is very important that privacy is preserved because otherwise, if we don't have privacy, we cannot have democracy. We cannot guarantee that we're not going to be any more coerced or manipulated, right? So we lose all our freedom in another world. So here I talk about different ways in which and, and different system in which privacy is fundamental. So one of them is, of course, voting. Once we vote with the internet, as we said before, when you go and vote uh, to the voting poll, right? Nobody can see you. You are in this hidden place where you put your vote in the own. When you vote electronically, everybody can see the vote going through the wire. And then how do we mix all of these votes inside a computer system where there is not like an own that you can shake it and the things just get mixed in a computer system? It doesn't work like that. So people have put a lot of effort on developing cryptographic primitives that support private voting. And we're still not at the moment where we can say that this is perfectly secure and private. And then I talk about censorship persistence and freedom of speech. And here we go back to the idea that um, it's inherent to democracy and humans to have privacy and have a right of what they're going to read and what they're going to say. Because if we're in a society where I feel that I'm observed, I'm not going to do the same actions, right? So uh, a lot of uh, work has been put into allow people to visit the internet in such a way that nobody can see what they are doing. So as to not coerce their freedom. And in places that actually try to censor users, like there are many countries in the Middle East or China where it is difficult to access particular parts of the internet, how we can put technology there to allow these people to actually have a view of what is happening outside their countries, again, with the goal of preserving core democratic values that you can only have when you have freedom of information. Well, let's go to the last section here, and this is privacy engineering. Uh, so the last section is about, so all of the previous one talk about um, individual technologies, but individual technologies per se do not make a system. And um, in the last years, a lot of people have put research into trying to articulate how can we take all of these uh, little pieces in order to compose the big puzzle. So I talk here about what are the goals that uh, privacy engineers should have when they try to uh, combine different technologies. How do they select technologies? And the main thing that you find as a common uh, factor for all of privacy technologies we have talked is that they minimize the trust that they need to put in any particular entity. So when we talk about privacy, the same thing as we do in the offline world and we minimize the trust that we put on different people to hold our secrets. We try to build um, systems that also contain this, this idea of minimal trust. And we do that by using all of the different methods we had seen before. We can encrypt, we can use uh, privacy preserving cryptographic protocols that allow us to compute unencrypted data so that the person doing the computation doesn't see anything. We can obfuscate the data. Uh, we can anonymize communications or anonymize data. And the full idea of all of this is really to try to not rely on anyone in the path or in the, in the 
computer system to actually preserve your privacy. This comes from the different techniques that we use. What are some of the common misperceptions that you think people have when it comes to privacy? So a very common misperception comes from the adversary model. Uh, people tend to perceive as the adversary other people, right? So whenever they think about, are my messages encrypted? Or who can see the things that are right on my computer? They tend to think about their colleagues, their families. But as I said, in a computer system, there are many more elements that is the network that can be served by people that, or by adversaries that normally we're not conscious about. And our data and our applications are run by service providers, and the service providers can see mostly all of the data. People tend to forget that all of these things happen because they do not exist in the physical world. So unless you start being a bit knowledgeable about it, it's very hard to imagine how many people do have access to the data that you produce online. And and I suppose one of the messages here from this uh, section of the body of knowledge is that privacy needs to be considered at the outset. It's, It's not something you can just add on at the end. Yes, and this is because of this adversarial model. If you don't uh, think correctly what is the adversary and try to minimize the trust from the beginning, adding this trust as a post hoc uh, tends to be very difficult. At this point in time, we don't have uh, such technologies. While if we can think about it from the beginning and we don't give out as much data or we put some of these uh, very simple controls from the early stages, we can get to a much more privacy-friendly design than if we don't think about it and think about it late. That's Carmela Troncoso. To learn more about the Cyboc project and the knowledge area we spoke about today, visit cyboc.org. This podcast is a product of the University of Bristol. Cyboc is funded by the UK National Cybersecurity Programme and led by the University of Bristol's Professor Awais Rashid, along with Professor Andrew Martin, Professor George Denisis, Professor Emil Lupu, Professor Steve Schneider, and Dr. Howard Shivers. The Cyboc podcast is produced by The Cyberwire with coordinating producers Jennifer Iben, Kelsey Bond, and Bristol University's Yvonne Rigby. The executive producer is Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening.